Life's everyday mysteries solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, and exactly how do we solve those problems? We do them through chemistry which is my background. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. And uh, we try to solve all kinds of problems here on Sunday afternoons through what I think is the thread that ties all other sciences together, and that is chemistry. And, um, and this morning on, on the trivia show, I, I was chatting with uh, Ken and Dan about uh, a program on uh, uh, on television. Actually, it, it's on uh, it's a streaming program on, on Apple TV, and it is based on a book, and it is Lessons in Chemistry. Well, it's not uh, didactic about chemistry. It is actually uh, a fascinating novel. It's a fictional account of a lady who in the 1950s becomes a chemist and isn't uh, immediately accepted by the male scientific community. Very interesting show. But I did make one remark uh, about it, and that was that uh, when you see the uh, drawings of molecular structures on the blackboard, some of them are absolutely nonsensical. The atoms don't have the right bonds. Uh, I don't know why they would not have um, used a consultant to at least get that right as well. Anyway, this morning also on the show, show that I did ask a question, and surprisingly, we did have a, a correct answer to that. I say surprisingly because uh, not all that easy. Uh, the question was, testing of a sample showed the presence of oleic acid, limonene, decamethylcyclopentasiloxane, diethylphthalate, squalene, and carbon dioxide, and I wanted to know what this sample was. Where was this sample taken from? Well, the answer to that is indoor air. Yep, it contains all those plus a lot more. Why? Because molecules are small. They are very, very, very small. So small that with every breath you inhale several sextillion of them. You know what that is? It's almost unimaginable. That's uh, a one followed by 21 zeros take you some time just to write that out. Now, of course, uh, roughly 99% of these uh, molecules are of oxygen and nitrogen, but obviously that still leaves many, many trillions and trillions of others available for that 1%. And these include scents from personal care products and cleaning agents, uh, smoke from fireplaces, cooking odors, pine tree fragrance, Roses smell, uh, smell of flatus, and uh, of course, uh, numerous compounds that do not have an odor. Let me give you an idea here. Just consider something as simple as baking bread. The delightful smell generated is composed of dozens of compounds. If you want to know some of these names, two acetyl, one pyrroline, to noninal, methional, maltol, plus many, many others. And then there's acrylamide, 
And that's a compound that has no smell at all and forms when the amino acid asparagine and glucose, both of which occur naturally in flour, react at a high temperature. Now, if you want to go ahead and toast that bread, you get even more acrylamide forming. And if you burn your toast, you'll be sniffing an array of compounds such as furanones and polycyclic hydrocarbons, both of which are recognized as carcinogens. And if you try to cover up the smell of the burnt toast with air freshener, you'll be inhaling a host of compounds like xylene, dichlorobenzene, limonene among them. Each of these can be shown to have some sort of toxicity under some condition. Of course, just because these chemicals enter our body doesn't mean they cause harm. But neither can we conclude that they don't. The chemical complexity of the air that we breathe uh, and its possible consequences on health, I mean, certainly do merit investigation. And such investigations have been carried out, but mostly on outdoor air. Numerous studies have found that air that is polluted with significant amounts of carbon monoxide, lead, nitrogen dioxide, ozone, sulfur dioxide, benzene, and tiny particulate matter from smoke and rubber, uh, that all of this raises the risk of heart disease, lung disease, cancer, and even cognitive damage. It's well known that people living near heavily trafficked areas are affected the most. But much less is known about indoor air, despite concerns about it having a long history. Uh, the effects of inhaled smoke were undoubtedly already noted when humans began to heat their caves with, with fire. Nobody likes to inhale smoke. But uh, today we know uh, that uh, these thousands and thousands and thousands of chemicals are present in our indoor air. But what they actually do, well, that we don't really know. But a series of experiments in 2018 under the title House Observations of Microbial and Environmental Chemistry uh, which was organized by an atmospheric chemist and a mechanical engineer and carried out at uh, House uh, University of Texas, which was specially built for this purpose. Uh, this is interesting because the house was equipped with all sorts of monitoring equipment to measure chemicals in the air. Oh, they could measure ozone and nitrogen oxides, ammonia, carbon dioxide, particulate matter, and volatile organic compounds, all kinds of stuff. And... Uh, over a period of months, the researchers were in this house with their students, and they cooked, they sweated, <laughs> and they accumulated data. And as one experiment, they cooked a Thanksgiving meal and found that at one point, the fine particulate matter in the air was higher than that found outdoors, and it was within the range that if it were outdoors, it would trigger a warning from the Environmental Protection Agency about potentially serious damage to the heart and lungs. So there was a lot of particle uh, matter that, that was discovered, uh, but there were other interesting findings too. Turned out that uh, when they mopped the floors with uh, uh, all kinds of solutions that contain bleach, which is very common, that the vapors from that would react with some of the chemicals from uh, food as they were stir-frying it and would produce yet more chemicals about which we really know very, very uh, little. Uh, then, of course, there were also human emissions. 
such as squalene, oily substance produced by sebaceous glands in the skin, and that prevents our skin from drying out. And then there was decamethylcyclopentasiloxane that's used as a lubricant in creams and shampoos, and diethyl phthalate used in perfumes to retard evaporation. And uh, at this point, I haven't even mentioned the hundreds of compounds found in coffee aroma, the fatty acids that emanate from foot odor, the numerous chemicals wafted into the air from spices used in cooking, and from the mold in the bathroom. And furthermore, all these chemicals have the potential of engaging in chemical reactions that can form yet more products. Obviously, in indoor air, we're dealing with a chemical stew of immense complexity with essentially unknown health consequences. One of the scientists involved in this study, Lee Hildebrand Ruiz, who also researches outdoor pollution and has monitored air in New Delhi, which has perhaps the world's worst air, well, she noted that fine particulate matter reaching uh, 225 micrograms per cubic meter on Delhi's worst days is still less than the 280 micrograms per cubic meter that was reached during the frenzied final hour of cooking the Thanksgiving meal. Well, of course, we don't uh, spend all day cooking Thanksgiving meals, while people in New Delhi do spend all day breathing in the air. But, of course, it's a good idea to have an effective ventilation hood above the kitchen stove whenever you're cooking to get rid of the smells that permeate the house. And if you can't do that, well, it's a good idea to have ventilation and open a window. So there are some thoughts on indoor air. Listening to the Dr. Joe show, Let's see what's happening in traffic out there, and we'll be right back. I guess I was so taken by um, someone having answered the question that I thought would be very difficult to answer on, on this morning's uh, trivia show that uh, this afternoon I forgot to pose the usual questions with which I start the show. So here we go. What two famous physicists filed a patent in 1930 for a novel type of refrigerator. So I'm looking for the name of the two famous physicists who filed a patent in 1930 for a novel type of refrigerator. And the second question, in the 19th century, Joseph Pujol, known as Le Petoman, astounded Parisian nightclub audiences with his replication of sounds made by farmyard animals and various musical instruments. How did he produce these sounds? If you know the answer to either one of those, you give us a call at 514-790-0800, or you can text to 514-800. And those, of course, are also the numbers that you can call if you have any questions related to science that I may be able to put you on the right track with. Uh, or, of course, if you have an answer to one of these questions. So you can either phone 514-790-0800, and yes, some people still do use the telephone, but most prefer to text. I don't know why, but they do. And that is at 514-800 if you want to text either your answers to the questions or uh, if you have some question of your own. In the meantime, let me talk a little bit about one of the chemicals 
that has been in the news extensively over the last couple of de decades, and that would be resveratrol. Well, resveratrol has been found to have all sorts of health benefits. Supposedly, it prevents cancer, improves athletic performance, extends life. And of course, most interestingly, the reason that it has received all that publicity is because it is found in red wine. So, is red wine the key to health? Well, this needs a discussion. Resveratrol does indeed extend life. If you are a yeast cell, a worm, a fruit fly, or maybe a short-lived fish. It prevents cancer if you're talking about skin cancer in mice. And it improves athletic performance if you're a mouse on a treadmill. But if you're a human, there is no evidence that resveratrol does anything at all. It may eventually prove to be of benefit to people, but one thing is already pretty certain. The amount found in red wine is nowhere near the amount that has produced benefits in any laboratory or animal trial. Th drinking red wine for its resveratrol content is futile. The dose of resveratrol that has produced those tantalizing effects in animal studies is roughly equivalent to that found in about a thousand bottles of red wine, hardly an amount to be consumed. But resveratrol in pill form may be a different story. It is possible to extract this compound from a variety of natural sources, including the skin of grapes, or more commonly, the Japanese knotweed. And you can pack about 250 milligrams of the stuff into a tablet. Then we're talking about doses that are comparable to the ones used in the animal studies. But before we start gulping those pills, a couple of items to remember. There's not a single study that has shown resveratrol supplements improve health or prevent disease. And we don't know if resveratrol in such high doses is safe. Of course, this is not to suggest that all the hype about resveratrol is nonsense, far from it. Hype, uh, there certainly has been. And yet, uh, we know that there's some interesting stuff going on when 60 Minutes, a highly respected CBS program, devotes a whole segment to a chemical. The crux of that story is that resveratrol has the ability, in the test tube at least, of changing gene expression. It turns on a gene that has been linked with longevity. That is the same gene that is active in animals that are placed on a calorie-restricted diet, and these indeed do end up living longer. The hope would seem to be that people can get the benefits of being on a calorie-restricted diet without having to go hungry all the time. Eat normally and live longer as long as you pop resveratrol. But a lot of research has to be carried out before evidence-based recommendations can be made to the public about these supplements. Resveratrol is very poorly absorbed when taken orally, and once it is, it quickly couples to glucuronic acid or to sulfates as the body tries to eliminate it. Nobody knows if these metabolites are physiologically active. Will resveratrol supplements add decades to human life expectancy, as some researchers suggest? 
Well, maybe. But let's keep in mind that the vast majority of substances tested in the lab or in animal trials that look hopeful never prove to be of value in humans. As far as a glass of red wine a day goes, well, enjoy it, but don't think that the few milligrams of resveratrol provides will have any benefit. On that, researchers agree. Of course, there's more to wine than resveratrol. Procyanidins, a class of antioxidants, may have some value, as may the alcohol itself. On the other hand, we also have to keep in mind that alcohol is ranked by the International Agency for Research on Cancer as a known human carcinogen. Not an animal carcinogen, not a carcinogen found in the laboratory and cultured cells, but in humans. There are many studies that have now shown that increased risk of oral cancers and breast cancer uh, parallel increase in alcohol intake. And there seems to be no um, threshold below which there is no risk. Of course, that's, that's debatable, and scientists, of course, are debating that, whether or not small amounts of alcohol consumed uh, do the benefits outweigh the risks. Uh, it's uh, hard to come up with any evidence uh, either way. I think it is unlikely that you know a couple of glasses of red wine a week are, are going to do uh, anyone any harm. And of course, they do bring some pleasure. That's the real value of red wine, is the pleasure it brings to the dinner table. And whenever we're talking about you know risks and benefits of, of uh, foods, food components or, or beverages, I always like to point out that uh, uh, we don't have to evaluate every drop of liquid that we drink and every morsel of food that we eat as being, quote, healthy or unhealthy. That's just an unreasonable way of looking at things. There are no single foods that are devils, nor are there any that are angels. There are good diets and poor diets, and one has to you know, evaluate everything that is eaten in order to come to some sort of decision about the value of, of a diet. I think it is possible to have the occasional glass of red wine and still have a very good diet. It is obviously possible to totally eschew all, all alcoholic beverages and still have a horrific diet. So uh, context is very important. And uh, whenever someone wants their diet evaluated, the best way to do that is to keep a dietary history, write down everything that is eaten, in terms of amounts, leaving out nothing, and then have that evaluate, evaluated by someone who understands the chemistry of nutrition, and then you can come to some conclusion about whether your diet is healthy or, or not. Okay, well, uh, we're going to check uh, what's going on in the world. We'll refer to CTV News, and after that, we'll be back, hopefully, with the answers to my questions about the two famous physicists who filed a patent in 1930 for a novel type of refrigerator, and about how Joseph Pujol, known as Le Petoman in the 19th century, entertained people at Parisian nightclubs by mimicking 
the sounds made by animals and various musical instruments. Question is how he did that. We'll check news and be right back. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. I did have an interesting question because I was commenting on the quality of indoor air. Um, someone suggested that I should also mention radon. Yes, that is a pretty important thing to mention. <clears throat> radon is a naturally occurring gas, and the problem with it is that it is radioactive. And when you have something that is radioactive, it can impact DNA and result in cancer. Radon forms within the ground, anywhere where you have uranium. Uranium is radioactive, meaning that it breaks down slowly and decomposes into other elements. One of these is radon, and uh, this can seep up through the ground, and um, it can expose homes to uh, its effects. You cannot smell radon, you cannot taste radon. The only way you know whether or not there's any radon present is to use a radon detector. And this is a relatively simple device, at least for home use. It incorporates a, a, a tube of activated carbon that absorbs gases. And you leave this in place for a while, and then you send it into a laboratory, and they analyze the gases that have been absorbed and determine whether or not there's any radon, and if there is, what the extent of radioactivity is. Now, because radon forms deep within the ground and comes to the surface through fissures in the ground, you cannot predict uh, exactly where it will emerge. So it is possible to have one house where you test the basement and you have zero level of radon, and then you test a neighboring house and you will detect some in the basement. It just depends on sort of the... the um, geology underneath the house and how the soil has fissures in it through which the gas can, can rise. In the Montreal area, it would be very rare to have radon because of the geology of, of what we have under us. Uh, there's very little uranium in the soil here. On the other hand, in some areas, in Winnipeg, for example, there's a much higher chance of having uh, radon. So in, in Montreal, really, the, uh, the chance of having radon contamination is very low, but not zero. And the only way you can know is by buying a radon test kit and having it tested. And then if uh, the levels are found to be too high, there are ways to address the problem. Usually, you have to dig under the house to um, build a vent that will then uh, kind of transfer the radon to the to the outside, but you know you you need obviously professional companies who can do that. So that's the story of radon. But again, you know, in in our area here, it is not very likely to have high levels of uh, of radon. Now, I did have a, an answer to the question that I asked about the Frenchman Joseph Pujol who was entertaining audiences under the stage name of Le Petoman. And the question was, uh, how was he replicating the sounds made by farmyard animals and various musical instruments? So I'm going to tell you the story of Le, Le Petoman, because indeed it is a fascinating story. He was a celebrated performer. 
and he was always magnificently dressed. He wore a waistcoat, red breeches, white stockings, black patent leather shoes, and he proudly strode to the center of the stage, very often performing at the Moulin Rouge, which was the nightclub in 19th century in Paris. And the capacity crowd was thrilled to finally see the famous French entertainer of the gay 90s. Not even the renowned Sarah Bernhardt, the actress, had as great a public appeal and commanded as high a fee as did Joseph Pujol. He was a musician of sorts, but he played no instrument. Rather, he himself was a mu musical instrument. One might call him a wind instrument. This illustrious entertainer had the ability to suck air into his body by relaxing his abdominal muscles, and then to expel the air at will by controlling his rectal sphincter. The unique elasticity of this particular part of Pujol's anatomy allowed him to produce sounds ranging from a clap of thunder to the ripping of cloth to noises made by animals and uh, uh, various musical instruments. It was said that he elevated passing wind to an art form. Spectators howled in glee when Lupe Thoman, as Pujol came to be known, proceeded to do a series of imitations of wind-passing techniques. His interpretations of the sonic booms produced by bricklayers, the apologetic tones of nuns, and the barely audible little staccatic bursts released by brides on their wedding night usually brought down the house. The act indeed, with Le Petoman blowing out a candle, well, that was the finale. And... That was really a unique performance. Joseph Pujol was indeed a scientific curiosity. He discovered his, quote, talent one day at the beach when as a young boy, he held his breath and put his head underneath the water. Almost instantly, he was shocked by a cold penetrating sensation in his abdomen. Young Joseph rushed out of the water and was astonished to see water rushing out of him. His curiosity aroused, Pujol soon learned that his body could be made to behave like a gigantic pipette, sucking in and releasing water at will. Then came the formidable discovery that he could also inhale and expel air in this extraordinary fashion. And so was born perhaps the most amazing novelty act of all time. Pujol sold the act to the manager of the Moulin Rouge in his inimitable way. Having brought a basin filled with water into the gentleman's office, he proceeded to empty and then refill the container by sitting on it. The bewildered manager was also treated to a series of sound effects and to a rendition of Au Claire de la Lune, played on a flute in a decidedly original fashion. It was breathtaking, or perhaps appropriately, not breathtaking. Pujol got the job and the rest, as they say, is history. Le Petoman became the toast of Paris. He inspired many imitators who could never match the great man's talent and were quickly blown away. One lady, however, Angèle Thibault, enjoyed a fair degree of success as a female Petoman. She promised no trickery or odor and even offered a money-back guarantee. Customers only had to pay if they liked the show. 
Apparently, though, Madame Thibaudot did resort to some chicanery because she stopped performing when Pujol sued her, claiming that she used mechanical devices to produce sounds, which to him came naturally. Can we learn anything from Pujol's unique gift? He himself recognized the singular nature of his talent and agreed to accept a medical school's offer of 25,000 francs to examine his body after death. However, when the peerless performer passed on in, 19, in 1892, at the age of 88, his children were not keen to push back the frontiers of science and did not allow a postmortem. But it is interesting to note that every morning the Petoman cleansed out his insides in this singular fashion, and he was never sick a day in his life. So that's the interesting story of uh, Le Petoman. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Okay, let's go back to uh, radon for just a moment because uh, when I was talking about very little chance of finding radon uh, and because of the geology, I was talking about Montreal Island. And as a couple of people uh, texted, indeed, off-island in Laval and Vaudreuil, uh, there have been uh, cases of uh, houses where uh, the levels were somewhat elevated above the limit of 200 uh, becquerel. And uh, uh, so uh, it is possible in those areas to, to have higher, and there it may be worthwhile testing. Anyway, the uh, becquerel, uh, as I mentioned, is the unit uh, in which radioactivity is measured. And let me fill you in a little bit about, uh, about that, because it is an interesting uh, story. Uh, and it was uh, in the summer of 1896 that Henri Becquerel went out into the garden of the École Polytechnique in Paris and placed a photographic plate wrapped in black paper in the bright sunshine. On top of it, he carefully positioned the crystal of uranium sulfate. Now, Becquerel was a physicist who had become interested in those amazing rays discovered just a year before by Wilhelm Röntgen. X-rays, as these were called, had the ability to cause certain substances to glow in the dark. If X-rays could produce a glow, maybe a glowing object could produce X-rays. That's what Becquerel thought. And he knew that uranium compounds fluoresced in the sun, so he embarked on his experiment. When he developed the plate and found an exposed spot that corresponded to where the crystals had been placed, he was elated but the experiment had to be verified. The next day, however, the weather was cloudy and Becquerel stored his wrapped plate and uranium in a drawer. Somehow this plate got mixed up with some exposed plates and was developed along with them. To Becquerel's astonishment, it showed spots just like the ones uranium had produced in the sun. Sunshine was not needed. The uranium crystals were giving off some form of energy that exposed the photographic plate. And one of Professor Becquerel's students eventually determined that this novel form of radiation was due to some sort of activity within the uranium atom, and it was not dependent on any external stimulus. She coined the term radioactivity to describe the effect. You know who that student was? It was Marie Curie. So now you know a little bit about uh, why when we measure radioactivity, the unit that is used is the unit of Becquerel because he was the French physicist who basically discovered radioactivity 
although he did not coin the term itself, the term was coined by Marie Curie, perhaps the most famous uh, female scientist of, uh, uh, of all time. Certainly the one about whom the most has been uh, written. And uh, obviously uh, a lot has been written about her because she was unique in the sense that there were not many female scientists at that time. She was the first female, of course, to ever receive the Nobel Prize. But we have come a long way since then. And uh, today, of course, uh, uh, female scientists have played major roles in every area of science. And as you know, Kathleen Carrico uh, was the recipient of the Nobel Prize just this past year uh, for her contribution in making the mRNA vaccine possible. And uh, a couple of years ago, uh, uh, Charpentier and Dudna, two women, received the Nobel Prize uh, for CRISPR the amazing technology that makes possible the alteration of, uh, of DNA in a relatively simple uh, fashion. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that, you know, when I started uh, the show today, we talked about uh, uh, lessons in chemistry, the, the uh, series on, on television that depict the uh, issues that were faced by a female chemist in the 1950s. And as I said, that that was very realistic. Uh, in those days, uh, uh, men scientists were not welcoming to uh, to women, and uh, the story is an accurate portrayal of that. Uh, and but then she eventually has success, uh, although not exactly in the chemistry lab or not in a traditional chemistry lab, but in the chemistry lab that we call the kitchen. And of course, when we do cooking, what we really are doing is experiencing uh, chemistry. Okay, uh, another interesting question that, that came in by text uh, about my comment about Joseph Pujol. And the question was, if he ever tried to light his emanations on fire? Well, no, because his emanations were not intestinal gases. Uh, certainly, when we're talking about flatulence, uh, which is, of course, a common human phenomenon, because during the digestion process, all kinds of gases are, are produced, uh, some which have no uh, fragrance whatsoever, and some like hydrogen sulfide, which can be quite uh, odiferous. And one of the gases that is produced is methane, and methane is highly combustible. And indeed, it is possible to light one's flatus. And uh, some people actually, of course, relish in demonstrating that. But in the case of Pujol, it was not flatulation. As I explained, he had the ability to suck in air through his rear and then expel the air. So what he was doing was blowing out air. So there would be no point in trying to light it because... It didn't contain any uh, methane. Uh, but I would not suggest uh, trying to light your flatus as a form of entertainment uh, because people have also burned their rear by trying to do that. You can get sort of flashback and you also have uh, methane still within the gut and that also can catch fire. So this is not a good thing uh, to do.
Okay, now about the other question that I asked, uh, yes, I, I got a texted answer to that as well. And this was about uh, the two famous physicists who in 1930 patented a novel type of refrigerator. And I wanted to know who those two physicists were. Now, let me tell you that these two guys were very famous, but not for this particular invention. We're talking about Albert Einstein and Leo Szilard, who of course were <laughs> extremely famous physicists, Einstein for the theory of relativity and Leo Szilard for the role he played in developing the, uh, the atom bomb. But uh, this patent, of course, was way before that. This was in 1930. And uh, both of them were living in Germany at that time. And uh, they were despondent about uh, a story that they had heard about a family who had died when a valve in the compressor of the refrigerator in their kitchen broke and released toxic sulfur dioxide gas. Now, in those days, refrigerators made use of sulfur dioxide or, or um, ammonia or methylene chloride as the, the gas that had to be compressed. And when it evaporated, it, it absorbed heat from the refrigerator. And uh, uh, Einstein and Szilard came up with an alternate type of refrigerator uh, that did not require a compressor. Uh, it uh, involved a complex system of solvent evaporating and condensing. And I looked at the patent and, and uh, I don't exactly follow how that, that it worked. Uh, of course, that is often the role of a patent is to, to uh, uh, make sure that people cannot follow uh, your uh, invention, but that nevertheless, you have laid a claim uh, to it. Uh, it never really went anywhere. This new refrigerator never uh, became popular uh, for two reasons. One is that Thomas, Thomas Mitchley in the United States came up with Freon, which was a much safer uh, gas to use than the ones that had been previously used. And also because uh, both Einstein and Szilard were Jewish and they had to leave Germany uh, when they were working uh, on this because Hitler was rising to power. And that is it. We are out of time for today. Uh, I will be at the Cote St. Luke Public Library on Monday at 2 o'clock for our monthly Science Demystified talk. And we had to put it off from the first Monday of this month because of previous engagements. So you're all invited. The Cote St. Luke Public Library is across the street on Cavendish from the formerly so-called Cavendish Mall. We're going to talk about some interesting stuff tomorrow. So you're all invited at 2 o'clock. But that's it for us here today. I'm Joe Schwartz. We'll see you next week. And until then, I hope all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>